my goal is we have treated issues of equity, inclusion, diversity, you know, anti-sexual harassment as siloed issues, right? It's over here off to the side in an equity inclusion person or over in HR. Usually it's buried in HR about three levels below the CEO. This is as important as an issue to you and the success of your company as your research and development arm is, or as your marketing arm is. This needs to be owned in the C-suite, you know, reporting to the CEO or the CEO needs to own it. Your board needs to think about this at every meeting, every quarter, just like they're reviewing other aspects of your performance. It needs to assume that level of central focus and be infused throughout all the parts of your organization on a constant basis, developing the metrics, looking at what your de demographics look like and where there's problems and pockets, looking at what your recruitment practices look like, really examining how you're handing out pay increases and bonuses, you know, and promotion practices and really unpack why you're gonna select this guy versus this woman, right? Um, and on an ongoing basis, I mean, that, that's really the theme that carries through these very specific issues. How we doing out there, folks? This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn, director of Breakline Apex, and I am here once again with my partner in crime. What is up, everybody? It is Sophia. Thank you again for joining us in the Breakline Arena. Kenny, how are you feeling today? Tell me, what's good in your life? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm excited. And I know I probably say that at the beginning of every episode of Breakline Arena. That's just your constant way of that's, living your that's life. That's my state of being, but what I'll tell you is this, mm -hmm. is this one's a little special. This one's a little special because this conversation with Tina Chen, if you hadn't heard of Tina Chen, and I'm gonna I'm be honest with you, I'll be honest. I was guilty of not knowing of Tina Chen before she came and spoke to our Breakline community. This woman is literally a living legend. Bethany's going to talk a little bit about her credentials uh, during the, the start of this conversation, but I just want to give you a couple of receipts because she got street cred for days. She's a lawyer. She's argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. She served as an assistant to the one and only President Barack Obama, chief of staff to Michelle Obama, executive director of White House Council for Women and Girls, and she is the president and CEO of Time's Up. And Whoa. for one person to be in so many spaces and places... Um, it was just, I was just in awe sitting back and listening to this conversation. Sophia, I'd love to hear just your thoughts, your impressions about Tina Chen. Just want to hear what your, what your feedback is here. Well, I'm freaking obsessed with Tina Chen. You guys obviously couldn't see, but I was fist pumping as Kenny was naming all of her accolades. <laughs> she was fist pumping. She, she is dazzling. I mean, her impact in this world feels unrivaled. She was in the Obama White House for all eight years of the administration. And she was front row and center stage for so many of the important memories from that administration. You know, she talks about in this conversation, the day that the Supreme Court legalized equal marriage opportunities. And then, of course, she is the person fighting within the Me Too movement. She is a tremendous advocate. She is literally changing our culture's relationship to gender inequity conversations. She is shaping public discourse. And I am so amped that we get to share this conversation with her. Excuse my fangirling. I just could not be more inspired. Well, and, and I think it's so important that I love what you just said, by the way, about normalizing some of these conversations. Because I think what's inspiring to me about 
the body of work that Tina Chen has put together over the course of her personal and professional career is that you realize that it takes individuals to drive conversations, to drive the narrative, to force issues, to bring, quite frankly, very challenging things to um, mainstream society. To see her have the courage and the fortitude to lead an organization that literally is so focused on providing safe, fair, and dignified work for women across mm-hmm. all backgrounds. I mean, that that's something special. Um, but I'm just super excited. So um, I don't know about you, but maybe we should just dive in and give the listeners what they came here for. Absolutely. And I will add a quick note that we actually had this conversation with her in November of 2020, just to help orient everyone in the time frame of this conversation. So Thank you guys for joining us. We will see you on the other side. Welcome, everyone. This makes me so happy to see this community coming out to hear from Tina Chen. Tina Chen is a personal hero to me. So you all know that the Breakline team has been working to create access to opportunity for lots and lots of folks from lots of different backgrounds. We're in this field of social impact work. Um, We know how hard it is to be change agents. And I look at Tina as someone who has cracked the code on how to do this. She's so inspiring. And the work that she and her team are doing is absolutely phenomenal. So I'm so delighted to have a chance to share more of their story, of Tina's story, and of the work that they're doing. Um, As we get started, Tina's bio, you know that early in her career, she was a litigation attorney for 20 plus years at Skadden Arps. She then um, went to the White House. She worked all eight years of the Obama administration. She was an assistant to President Obama. She was chief of staff to Michelle Obama. She was the executive director um, for the Council on Women and Girls. And then more recently, um, she's transitioned to her current role as president and CEO of Time's Up. Tina, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Bethany. I'm delighted to be here. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to be a part of this community. Thank you. Well, we love having you. And I want to kick it off and just talk a little bit about your personal life. You have this amazing personal story and the journey that you and your family went through. Your parents emigrated to the U.S. from China, and you grew up in a predominantly Jewish suburb of Cleveland. And so I'd love to talk about how that childhood experience inspired your decision to pursue a career in social justice and advocacy. Well, I'm laughing because Bethany, you've done your homework (laughs) and you've got got that out there. So yeah, I mean, my father, you know, my parents came, you know, as young, you know, in their twenties, a married couple in 1949. Um, And my father really decided not to settle on the, in New York or California where he had family and friends because he had actually heard stories from them about some of the discrimination that, you know, they were experiencing his, his friends and thought that that something had something to do with the high concentration of Chinese in New York and California. So he took us to where there were literally no Chinese <laughs> Americans at the time, which was the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. This is in the 50s and 60s. Over literally, there were eight families on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. We knew them all. <laughs> we actually did Chinese school on Saturday mornings in one of one of the families, you know, dad's basement where he was our he was our teacher. Um, and uh, but you know, it was that's I went all the way through high school there. 
um, in, as you correctly say, Beechwood, Ohio, which is a, you know, predominantly Jewish neighborhood at the time. So I was very much the only. And what I didn't realize it had prepared me for is to be the only in my career. You know, so I have grown up in an environment where I was used to getting sort of stared at in the grocery store or trying to find my voice as a young Chinese girl, you know, um, growing through high school and elsewhere. And I didn't realize really until actually not too long ago um, where I realized how prepared that actually made me internally to be the only person as a litigator at Skadden Arps, which is where I was for two decades before the White House, um, you know, to sort of raise my voice and find my voice in those rooms where I was definitely the only woman and definitely the only person of color working on really big, you know, you know bet the company deals and, and mergers and acquisitions. And so it really did prepare me. But then the other thing I just have to, and I, you know, I haven't said this very often. My mother, my, both my parents actually were really committed in their own ways to their community. Uh, again, which you just sort of got by osmosis as a child. You know, my mother was a Brownie troop leader, for example, you know, for my troop. She was very involved in the American Field Service, you know, and then she got very ill. My mother had um, rheumatoid arthritis, which she contracted when I was only six or seven, and it became very acute. Um, and so, so, you know, she had to limit those, but still was doing the PTA, was really involved in our suburb. And that, I think, again, you just had this example that you grew up with of being involved in your community, which is what I've always done with my life. Mm-hmm. But not because they told me, you just, like I said, as a kid, you just sort of absorb what's happening around you. Mm-hmm. I love this story so much. And it, it reminds me of how our, our upbringings really shape us and shape our interests and our passions. Um, I want to get to the work that you and your team are doing at Time's Up, but I, I also want to spend some time talking about the portion of your career that you spent in D.C. You supported President Obama's political campaigns for years. And then, of course, were involved in his presidential campaign, joined the Obamas at the White House um, in various roles that I mentioned at the at the beginning of our talk. I'd love to for you to share a little bit more about your experience in DC. Was there a seminal moment there that you find yourself <laughs> reflecting on? There might just not be not just one, but you know, a, a moment or an experience that was particularly meaningful for you. Yeah, well, it's hard to pick out one. Um, and it is, you know, I had no idea this is what the, the career turn, right? Um, I I was very happy at Skadden. I'm one of the few like corporate lawyers you'll find around who said, I actually, I really enjoyed it. I loved being at the firm. Um, I, you know, loved the intellectual challenge of, of the work. Um, uh, the sort of, like I said, you know, you only hire Skadden Arps when you got a really bad case and it's a bet the company case. So I loved that challenge of going into a board of directors and a CEO to try to save the business. Um, and was pretty happy, but I always did gender equity issues on the side. I had to actually resign from 10 not-for-profit boards when I joined the White House. So that's how, how much I was out there and always did politics. You know, I say often, I, I live in Chicago um, and when you're in Chicago, like politics is like a full-on contact sport. You know, I didn't golf, I didn't garden. Politics was my hobby. And as big a city as, as Chicago is, when you're doing progressive democratic politics, the world is kind of small. And so somewhere in that world, I met Barack and Michelle Obama long enough ago, the three of us do not remember how we met, supported him through his campaigns, as you know, Bethany, and, you know, pretty surprisingly, you're right, you know, he becomes president of the United States. 
and asked me to go. And it's right about, I'm reliving that time right now because it's this very moment in the transition in 08 where kind of the call came in. You know, my, I was debating whether to take the position over Thanksgiving in 2008 and accepted it that weekend. And my position was announced December 5th. So I'm, I'm having sort of like flashbacks <laughs> right now as I watch the Biden team and my friends in the Biden team put this together because I was living that 12 years ago. Um, very unexpected. You know, my daughter was in sixth grade. My son was in college. We had this great life. Um, uh, I'm living in the house that I owned because the condition the children put was, well, you can move to DC, but you cannot sell this house. So I kind of sort of carried that real estate, you know, uh, during the eight years. Um, but it was just a rare opportunity, right? You know, the president of the United States does not ask you to do things very often in your life and you go. Um, and I really had the opportunity to be at the center of it, which I also didn't expect, you know? So first um, I ran the office of public engagement, which is the outreach office for the president. So all during the two years of trying to get the ACA passed, trying to get the recovery act passed, trying to get Dodd-Frank passed. Um, uh, you know, I was responsible for marshalling the groups for taking in, the things that the LGBT community wanted to do. I was very involved in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and then all the efforts that led to the, you know, you know, overturning of the Defense of Marriage Act, and then eventually getting marriage equality. Um, so it was thrilling. I mean, it was just every day was different. Um, and then after two years, Mrs. Obama asked me to move over to the East Wing, which is where, you know, famously the West Wing, the Ovals in the West Wing. Well, the First Lady's office is over on the other side of the White House in the East Wing. And to go there and become her chief of staff where I finished out the six years. But then all eight years, I was also the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls, which Valerie Jarrett and I helped create with President Obama and gave me the opportunity since I'd done gender equity for so much of my life as a side hustle um, to do it as my full-time job, right? To do really be able to command, you know, the entire federal government on what they were doing around issues concerning women and girls. And it was just amazing to be able to do that in that way. You know, I, I often say I will never have another job where I can read the New Sunday New York Times, see an issue, right, that I'm concerned about, write an email about that issue that night, and by Friday have policy ideas from across the federal government on how we're going to answer that issue, which happened more than once. And it'll never happen again. That's the only job where that can, that, that can happen. Um, and you're right, Bethany. I mean, there were too many things. You know, there were there were these beautiful state dinners. There were watching Malala Yousafzai come to the Oval Office to meet with President Obama. You know, um, watching not just famous people come to the Oval Office, but engagements with everyday people, which Mrs. Obama was passionate about making sure that we do. But the seminal day, many of us talk about. Um, and I think, I know that the president feels this. I think, I know Valerie wrote about it in her book. I, I think the day, that particular day that strikes all, a lot of us is the day that marriage equality was, was the decision by the Supreme Court. The day before we actually won this Supreme Court decision upholding the Affordable Care Act, right? And then the next day, it's 10 o'clock and Valerie gets the call that the Supreme Court has made a decision from the council's office. She calls the president because he had not yet come over from the residence to the office because we were traveling that day. And uh, she excitedly tells him, you know, the marriage equality decision's out. He finally has to say to her, um, and which way do they rule? <laughs> she in her excitement sort of forgot to say that we had actually won it. Um, it was also the day we were already planned to go to Charleston, South Carolina for the funeral of Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who was part of the Charleston massacre that occurred there, remember the nine people who were killed um, in their church. And so we were already planned to go there. So I went ahead out to Air Force One while the president, you know, and the first lady and the and Valerie stayed behind because he then quickly wrote up remarks to deliver to end the Rose Garden, you know, on the occasion of, you know, making marriage equality the law of the land. I got to Air Force One and because we were going to South Carolina and because this this funeral was so important, we had already arranged for members of Congress to join us on the flight. And so as a senior official on the plane, I was welcoming people in. And um, Congressman John Lewis and Congressman Elijah Cummings got on the plane and I invited them to stay in the staff cabin as opposed to the visitor cabin to watch. Because actually, I'll tell you guys this. I don't say this usually when I tell the story. John Boehner was in the, sta- in the visitor cabin already because he was coming with us. He had already arrived with the Republican members. They were in the visitor cabin. The president was about to go on TV. I said to John Lewis and Elijah Cummings, I said, you might want to stay with us and the staff in the staff cabin to watch this. <laughs> so... So as a result, I do have in my personal files an amazing photo that one of my colleagues took of me standing on Air Force One with John Lewis's arm around me, Elijah Cummings standing on my other side, watching President Obama on TV, on Air Force One, talking about the marriage equality decision. And it's like stunning. It's like, I look at that photo all the time and it's like, oh my God. And then we went down to South Carolina. So the story doesn't end there. We went down to South Carolina. This is the speech in which President Obama gave one of his most eloquent addresses where he sang Amazing Grace. You've probably seen the clip um, because it was heart rendering, right? And what you didn't see on the camera was we spent another hour and a half to two hours in Charleston after the speech because after every one of these tragedies and we had far too many, right? I mean, we just had a series of these, right? The Navy Yard shootings, Sandy Hook, you know, go down the list. We would spend time, the President and Mrs. Obama, with each family individually. You know, we would have them in the back. In this case, we were in a large auditorium and there was sort of like a um, locker room kind of area. And we had each of the families in different groupings and they went from family to family. They took whatever time the families needed. What struck me about these particular visits is these families were already so full of grace and they calmed us down, right? And I remember one of the families had some teenage kids who already were, had made t-shirts that said love over hate and got the president the first lady to take photos with them so they could Snapchat them. I'm thinking like, oh my God, there's more Snapchatting in the middle of all of this, but that's where they were, right? That's that, it, I will never forget those families and the example they set for me and for the world about how you overcome that kind of tragedy with a tremendous faith and grace. And that story's not over yet. <laughs> we fly back to Washington, DC. It's a Friday night, fly back to Washington, DC. And what I knew, but very few people knew, I had told the president first lady, but very few people knew is as the sun went down that day, that is the day that the White House then was colored rainbow colors. So one of the things oddly that became my job, you never know what a two decades at Skadden prepares you for, is my job was decorations at the White House. <laughs> not by necessarily my forte as a, as, a, as a litigator, but decorations of the White House. And so I was the person in charge of saying no to all of the many groups who wanted to light the White House, right? Blue for this thing and green for that thing. Um, and so we held the line on that. And that's why when the idea came up to light the White House colors for marriage equality, it was not a given that I would say yes. And the idea actually came from two of our youngest 
White House staffers, you know, Jeff Tillerson in the in the communications department and Aditi Hardiker in the Office of Public Engagement. And they first went to Valerie Jarrett, then came to me with this sort of idea of what, what do we do, knowing that I normally said no. And we decided because that would be such a singular moment if we won. And we didn't know we would win if we won marriage equality that, yes, that doesn't mean like we're doing it every year. It would be unique. Um, so I said, yes, then I had to actually figure out how to do it. Cause it turns out separating those colors is like actually not so easy. <laughs> so why, and, and it's expensive. I had to figure out a way to find somebody who would pay it. So because we weren't going to use taxpayer dollars and get somebody to help, you know, um, uh, practice. We had to practice in secret on the backside of the white house away from the press to see if we could get the colors right. Um, but then we did it. And as the sun went down and the colors got more brilliant, I have to tell you, I can't even say it without, without tearing up. You know, staff just spilled out onto the North Lawn of the White House. Um, uh, all the areas that are now sadly barricaded off, right, in the park, filled. There were no barricades back then. And people just filled that street on Pennsylvania Avenue. And I watched marriage proposals happen on the spot, you know, um, and it was just completely spontaneous, spectacular joy after such a day of sadness um, uh, and a real representation of how change happens, right? Because when we started, think about it, eight years previously uh, or seven years previously, um, it was by no means an idea that you could get marriage quality. And Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in place back then, right? You know, gay rights was really, you know, not what, you know, anyone thought would actually happen. So... So that's probably the day, right? That I, you know, it kind of gives you the arc of all the kinds of things that can happen when you're in the White House. I mean, I, I cannot believe that that was one day of your experience there. And you said you were tearing up. I was having a really emotional reaction and I was thinking about a brake liner who um, introduced himself to us and in a very personal way. And he, he, he let us peek behind the curtain at who he was. And it was scary for him to do that um, because these were facets of his life that um, where he had felt judged and he had felt unsafe at particular points. And I said to him, you have just given us five more reasons to love you. And I wanna just commend you, Tina, you and your team are examples of people who did the hard work to make it safe for people to be the fullest expressions of who they are. And that's always the best expression of who we could possibly be. So just thank you so much for that example that, that oh, you set for the rest of us and, and the work and the outcomes that you drove. Um, I, wanna, I wanna turn now to Time's Up and the work that you all are doing that is so critically important today. And you know, Time's Up may be most famous um, for its work helping to bring sexual predators like Harvey Weinstein to justice. However, under your leadership, the, the organization's scope and mandate has really expanded. And so I'd love for you to talk to us, bring us up to date on the mission of Time's Up today. No, absolutely. Well, as, as you know, Bethany, you know, Time's Up was really born in that moment, right in, you know, the fall of 2017, when the reporting around Harvey Weinstein, you know, by the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine came out. And there was this spontaneous gathering of women in Hollywood who all of a sudden realized they weren't alone, right? You know, this, this, these, these non-disclosure agreements, the way the settlements had worked, the pressure on survivors when something happened had really meant that so many women, not just in Hollywood, but then in other industries, 
thought they were the only one. So of course they didn't speak out. And it, you know, a dam broke, you know, in that moment. And, um, and these women from Hollywood gathered um, first, you know, in growing numbers at just to, in the beginning, just to talk to each other and be a support group to one another and share some of that pain. But to their credit, they very quickly decided they wanted to turn the pain into action. I happened just coincidentally at some, lots of your life is just like showing up accidentally in the right place at the right time. I was in Los Angeles about three weeks after the Harvey Weinstein, not even three weeks after the Harvey Weinstein articles appeared um, and happened to be in the office where they were gathering, right? And first got drawn in and pulled in because I knew some of them and they wanted, you know, like, what should we do? And very quickly, we sort of realized that one of the things we needed to do was to get legal representation for the women who were starting to speak out because they were getting threatened with um, defamation suits. And then we quickly realized actually that there were many, many women, low-income women who couldn't afford to get lawyers for their case because their wages are so low, no lawyer could afford to take their case, right? If the recovery is gonna be so low because you're getting eight bucks an hour. Um, and so from that, the idea was born to create a legal defense fund, never been done before on a national level like this. And um, I, you know, we knew we could, we didn't even have an organization, right? At that time, we didn't even have a, a name for what it would be. The name would come later um, in the process. But I reached out to the National Women's Law Center as an experienced uh, legal group to run this. And they were, I sort of still give Fatima Gasgraves the president credit. You know, they were, they were a 45 year old established organization. I come to them with this crazy idea right around Thanksgiving. And then I said to them, and we're going to launch this on January 1st and sort of roll it out on the Globe Globes carpet, <laughs> red carpet. So we had to figure out this new entity and how it would work and how we could make it work. They did it to this day. We famously actually raised $24 million in the first you know, a couple of weeks after we announced it, a hundred percent of the 24 million went to the legal defense fund and we're still using it right now to help people. We've um, helped over 5,000 folks. Um, we've done cases like class actions, you know, um, against McDonald's for McDonald's workers. We've got one pending. We've done class actions for FBI agents who were, you know, sexually harassed at Quantico, you know, a nuclear power plant worker um, who was, has a really horrific story of getting, you know, um, really sexually assaulted during a training in the dark. So she doesn't even know who the assailants were, but they were definitely coworkers because it was a training with them all together. Um, those kinds of cases we're still pursuing. Um, but we separately, it lives over there. We still fund it and support it. But over time, we realized we needed an advocacy organization as well, right? And both to pursue survivor justice. So one of the things we did was to really support, for example, the Weinstein survivors throughout the Weinstein trial did some really important work on gathering expert, you know, for, to brief the media because we knew that the um, women who were testifying in the Weinstein trial would have a record of emails that they were exchanging with Harvey because yes, he might've assaulted them in the hotel but they were still trying to launch their careers. That's what happens with powerful men. And we were successful at getting the media to listen to the experts. We did private briefings with them. So the reporting was actually very even-handed and helped us, I think, get the jury verdict. It's so unusual to have a jury verdict that we got convicting Harvey when you had long ago allegations and women who had a relationship with him. You know, it's not your usual idea of how somebody gets raped. Um, but then we also know, and I feel this so strongly, you know, our goal is not just to pick up the pieces right after sexual harassment happens. 
but also to create a world where it doesn't happen in the first place, right? Where we have workplaces that are safe and fair and equitable. Everyone should feel the ability to go to their workplace, do their best work, be judged on their best work, make their living without having to worry about getting sexually harassed, right? In the process or being discriminated against or you know, just being made fun of, right? Some of this isn't just the legal definitions, it's the microaggressions that happen. When somebody makes fun of you for your hairstyle or because you're a woman technician, you know, techno, tech person. Um, and so our goal now really is to create safe, fair and dignified work by changing you know, companies, you know, culture and laws, right? Because I think you need all of those things to change. You know, we work on public policy issues like passing paid leave and equal pay, but I also feel Importantly, you know, from my work as a lawyer, having represented companies for so long, you know, the, the, the um, fastest way to change is going to be to help employers. We want to hold employers accountable, but we also have to help employers do things to build better cultures inside their companies. Um, and then we have to change the broader culture around how, what we think about women and what we think about women's leadership and how we think about these issues. Um, and so that that's the broader, not so small <laughs> mission now. Uh, time's up to really, you know, survivor justice and also work for safe, fair, and dignified work for everyone. Thank you for that overview, Tina. And I, I want to um, dive more deeply into one um, campaign that you all have launched recently, which is called We Have Her Back. And I'll set it up and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, in the two weeks following the announcement of Senator Kamala Harris as the Democratic nominee for vice president, time's up. Um, ran an analysis that found more than 11,000 online news articles that had used bias language about her. The type of language that you're talking about, which makes people feel unsafe, which is undermining, which is humiliating, which is designed to make us lesser versions of ourselves. You said the pervasiveness of sexism in our political and public discourse infects not only how we think about women running for public office, but also how we think about women leaders in every sector. So in response, Time's Up and other leading women's advocacy organizations formed the We Have Her Back campaign, which analyzed media coverage of Harris and other leading figures as well, but also compared Harris's coverage with that for Mike Pence and Tim Kaine, her kind of immediate peers. I'd love for you to share what you all found and some of the outcomes that you've driven as a result of that work. Yeah, no, thank you, Bethany. Um, you know, We Have Her Back really came out of in the summer, you know, myself and other women leaders who sort of felt like we've seen this movie before. This is in the run up to the announcement of Senator Harris when, it, you know, Vice President Biden had made the commitment to select a woman running mate. And we were like, we can't let this happen again and just stand by silently while the kinds of attacks, whomever the nominee would be, would come. And so we came together, sort of dreamed up the idea of we have her back. It was a coalition which we housed at Times Up and we ran it. But, you know, we would send out a daily alert to over 300 individuals and organizations, right, on what every day's, you know, report would be. We had Edelman Trust, you know, and um, Intelligence do the work for us every day on a watch room and give us the analysis. Um, because it's so striking. I have to tell you the story of when we announced it. So we announced it on the Friday before the week in which Senator Harris was announced as the nominee. Because you can't make this up. The next day, 24 hours later, the next day on Saturday, the New York Times ran a piece by Maureen Dowd, which compared the VP selection process to 
Geraldine Ferraro waiting for the prom corsage from Walter Mondale back during those days. Also the same day across the country, the LA Times. So we're not talking about like social media outlets like in the dark corners of the internet. The LA Times ran an article that compared the VP selection process to an episode of The Bachelor and referred to the Oval Office as the ultimate fantasy suite. It's kind of like, all right, you just made the case for why we need, you know, we have her back to call this out, to educate the media on what they need to do. And then it proceeded, right? So once Senator Harris was announced, you saw things like being called phony, which doesn't sound like it's a sexualized word, but when you use it in reference to a woman running for a high office like that, she's a phony, why? Because women don't belong in those seats, right? That's why she's phony. And it does affect, as Bethany, as you point out, not just how we think about Kamala Harris sitting in the VP spot, but how we think about women as CEOs. You know, remember we are in a moment right now in 2020 where there is not a single black woman CEO of a Fortune 500 company right now as we sit here today. It affects all the way down to, you know, a line manufacturing worker, right? You know, who thinks she might want to become a supervisor one day, right? How does the management of that company think about her as a potential leader? Um, if Kamala Harris is a phony or a monster, tick down the words, or you've got fellow senators of hers or making fun of her name, um, uh, or worse, right? So there was a really highly sexualized set of memes that were running on social media that we also sort of wrote a memo to the media about. Um, uh, you know, that really, you know, it, 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 it metastasizes through our entire culture. And that's the culture change that I'm talking about that we need to, to, uh, to change. I, I will say that as a result of our work, and we would call this out constantly as things were happening, I think that we had engagement of about 120,000 different articles and posts reaching about 15 billion people as the potential. It really, I think, touched a chord for a lot of women in America, you know, once, because we've experienced it. I mean, how many women have sat and gotten the kind of looks that VP Pence was giving Kamala Harris during that VP debate, right? This sort of snide look, the interruption, you know, all of those, which are all what we as women have experienced all the time. And I think that calling it out and naming it and identifying it and getting the mainstream media to properly report on it, because you saw, I think, many more articles about this phenomenon happening, which we called on the media to do. And I'm really grateful that many of them did. Um, you know, that, that, that was the campaign. I'm really proud of the work. We put it together very, very fast and got, you know, had, had some terrific donors who came forward to help fund it very, very fast. And I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we did. I'm, I'm so proud of the work that you did. And, um, and I'm proud to be able to talk about it with my four daughters, you know, who, who could not be more overjoyed to see Kamala Harris in this position. It's, it's just such an amazing moment in history. Just over a week or so ago, we nominated the first black and Asian woman to become the next vice president of the United States. My friend Gail Taylor is here. We were texting and calling throughout that couple of days, just crying with joy over this moment for, for all women. Um, and so I'd love for you to share your key takeaways from the, the 2020 election. What, what do you make of, of this moment that we're in? Oh, you know, it's really complicated, actually, Bethany. I mean, I, th I think we're going to be unpacking it for a while. I was just telling somebody before this call that I have resisted so far re reading 
sort of the exit poll analysis of, you know, how many youth, youth how many this, that, because I actually don't believe anybody knows just yet. You know, I'm sort of waiting for better analyses on trying to figure out where, you know, where the margins of victory were, where the turnout turned up. Um, uh, I think it's fantastic that, you know, the voting numbers just as a whole, let's talk about that, you know, um, was the highest ever because I, I also, in my side hustle, continue to work with my old boss, Mrs. Obama, on when we all vote, which is her effort, right, to actually encourage and create a, a, a culture now in our country where everybody votes all the time and we make it easy for people to vote instead of hard um, because that's how our democracy works. So that, that takeaway is, is, is terrific. Um, I am concerned, as I think lots of people are, about what the, what the election tells us about the divisions in the country. Um, but the interesting thing that is kind of gotten, gone under the radar is, you know, the same night, for example, that Florida, you know, um, voted for President Trump, um, the six, oh, nearly 60% of Florida voters voted for a ballot um, provision um, that will raise the minimum wage and address the gender gap in Florida, right? It's kind of interesting. About 60% of Utah voters um, approved a ballot measure in Utah that eliminates gender terms in their constitution and their state laws in Utah. So that suggests to me that there is something else going on when you take out the electoral politics, when you take out sort of President Trump and that factor on our issues, right? On the issues that we work on on Time's Up around gender equity, around pay equity, around fair pay and promotion, sexual harassment, that if we can get past the noise of the you know, blue and red politics and start working with folks in state legislatures and in individual companies around the issues that you know, we have an overwhelming majority of the country, even in red states, right, that support those issues. Thank you, Tina. So over the last couple of generations, women's participation in the workforce has edged up to 50%, and it's been slow progress, but steady progress. Um, however, you've recently said, and there's a ton of research to back you up on this, we've had a pandemic, a healthcare crisis, an economic crisis, a racial justice crisis. We now have a caregiving crisis. And these factors are complicating our efforts to create a more equitable workplace. As, as I was listening to you say this on, on a podcast, my, one of my best friends texted me and said, oh my gosh, COVID is back. All of my childcare activities have been canceled. I now have to be, she called it, Cinderella, a chef, a therapist, and I have to pretend to work. And she included a couple of choice words in there. Um, but this is just, it was just in that one moment, this one woman in anguish saying, I don't, I can't do all of this anymore. Um, can you talk a little bit about your insights here about this caregiving crisis and, and the impact that it's having on women in the workforce? No, absolutely. You know, we are having a caregiving crisis and we really run the risk, Bethany, of undoing that, that generations of progress. You know, getting to 50% of the labor force is something that has been going on since 1970, right? That's how long it's taken to slowly creep that number up. And we really run the risk of undoing all of that work over those decades. You know, in September alone, the September jobs report showed that 860,000 women left the workforce you know, in August and September. Um, 320,000 of them were Latinx women. 
that's actually more than the entire number of men, which was about 250,000 that left the workforce that month. You know, that just demonstrates, you know, the potential loss. Um, we know that there's anywhere from four and a half to five million childcare center slots that are at risk because the childcare centers are underfunded and with COVID going on, we obviously know schools are completely out and we're in the second surge. Um, and, and manufacturing companies, so employers are feeling it too, right? You know, the Wall Street Journal reported in August that, you know, it's something, you know, nearly half of manufacturing companies that they had talked to had lost days of work in August because they're, they didn't have enough workers show up. And the reason they didn't show up was because they had caregiving responsibilities, right? So we, out of every crisis, there's an opportunity. So here's the opportunity. For years, the prevailing view in the United States as different from other countries in Europe and elsewhere, if you think about it, we have viewed caregiving as a private responsibility. This is something, you know, and many of you who are parents have probably experienced this. This was your problem to figure out, right? Your problem to hire the nanny or find the childcare center and make the arrangements and figure out how to pick up your kids. Um, not an employer responsibility, not a public policy responsibility. Um, we need to change that. And I see that mentality changing where we really need to see caregiving as something that employers like those manufacturers help their employees solve and make some investments to help their employees solve like on-site childcare or investments in helping people, you know, hire, you know, hiring, for example, a, you know, uh, you know, retired teachers to help your employees, right, children with their tutoring or get a Khan Academy account that your, your staff can use. Um, and we need public policy, you know, to recognize that caregiving is an infrastructure investment we need to make. Right, we need to like you have in Europe in many places where there is. My sister lives in France, and in France there is a network of childcare centers spread across the country. Where I remember she lived in the south of France. When we traveled to Paris, she could drop the kids off in the Paris daycare centers that were available when we went off because they have a system, you know, government-funded, available, and accessible, affordable, and sufficient number of slots childcare centers throughout the country. Um, we need to see that as critical infrastructure to help make our economy better. And it's not just childcare, it's elder care, it's spousal care, it is self-care, it is also things like paid leave and paid sick leave. We are the only industrialized country in the world that does not have a national paid leave policy or paid sick leave. We, we went into a pandemic without a national paid sick leave policy with something on the order of 50, between you know, 50 and 60 million workers without knowing they had a paid sick day, right? In a pandemic. Um, so we need to see those infrastructures and build them. And here's the other thing, it's a stimulus, right? So if we're talking about needing to come out of, an, of, of a crisis, an economic crisis and build and stimulate the economy, if you invest in a caregiving economy that includes paying caregivers, for example, a fair wage, so we can attract more people into caregiving and see it as a profession and invest in it and make sure caregivers are treated fairly because we know caregivers are actually in the home are subject to tremendous amounts of abuse and being taken advantage of. If you pay them 15 bucks an hour, they will spend that money to stimulate the economy and they are doing the work that allows someone else to go to work to stimulate the economy. So it is an infrastructure build that will also continue and make us more competitive as a country into the future. Because for those of you who are global companies or working with global companies, they got this in other countries. They're not having to assume that cost, right? They've got a competitive advantage on us for doing, for doing that. 
And so I really hope that we can now in this recovery bill, which was going to have to happen in 2021, that we build some of these really innovative infrastructure costs in. And for those of you, I would challenge those of you who are sort of disruptors, you know, part of, you know, the disruptor, you know, economy and thinking. I am telling you right now, child care, caregiving, the broader definition of caregiving is an industry that screams for a disruptor model. You have huge demand. You have very disaggregated and diffuse, you know, means of supply, right? Individuals, how do you match them? How do you make sure they're safe? How do they have the training? Um, how do you connect those people? For me, it like screams for you all to think about, right? Some new models and ways of organizing that system of making it affordable for everybody, making sure everybody can have a living wage and be flexible, you know, you know, um, for people's needs. Um, so I'm optimistic, you know, and it's something we're gonna spend a lot of time on and time's up on the public policy changes, on working with groups of employers on innovations um, that this crisis moment has woken everybody up to what has been a longstanding issue, right? For especially women in the workplace, but not just women. And that we can now finally as a nation really collectively public sector, private sector, NGO sector together sort of help to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Tina, I, um, our team at Breakline absolutely loves working with the tech sector, partly because the tech leaders tend to be very progressive around these issues. And just in my first screen of attendees here, we have folks like Sylvia Johnson, Tay Scott, Roger Scott, Mark Greenberg, Kim Scott, none of them are related, um, Sarah Schwartz, you know, people who have really stepped up in very substantive ways to do things differently, to create opportunity and access for other people who don't necessarily look like them or walk a similar path. And I find that level of engagement really inspiring. Um, and I wanna tie it to something that you've said, which is you noted a lot of times companies can act more quickly than public policymakers. Um, and we've seen that with Breakline and our work with, with the tech industry. So I'd love to hear from you, last question from me, what practical steps can leaders in tech, but not just the leaders, the employees, our teams, what can we do in this moment to build workplaces that, um, that are safe, fair, and inclusive? No, that, well, that is our work and it's a great question. I will, and I truly believe that, you know that Bethany, I think that companies, you know, public policy is one thing, but it's always gonna be the lowest common denominator and it's slow to make that change. Companies, if you're running a company, you can overnight, right? Look at your culture and make the changes that you need to. Um, and I would say be aspirational and don't just go to the lowest level of what's legally required, which has been one of the failings of the past. We all did it. I did it in my, you know, we only did what was legally required in our labor and employment laws. That's the other problem with our cultures is there's so much bad behavior that's not illegal, but probably toxic. So you wanna address that. One comprehensive place I can point to you with practical advice is, you know, early, you know, on in the pandemic moment, you know, um, early summer, we actually solicited ideas from, you know, over two dozen companies and put them to together in sort of a practical guide called a, you know, Times of Guide to um, Equity and Inclusion During Crisis. It's open sourced. Um, Bethany, we can make sure that it's available. It's 17 pages of very, very practical advice on how to build an anti-racist organization, how to listen to your employees and invest in them, you know, how to be an empathetic leader in this moment. You know, things like if you're coming back to work, 
and you have to space your desks six feet apart, who's moving off the C-suite floor, right? Um, and what impact does that have on diversity and equity? You know, when your all your meetings are by Zoom and the intern who you were trying to mentor, who you would normally just walk past their desk on your way into a conference room and bring them along so they could backbench and learn and listen, that's not happening, right? When you're just thinking about who needs to be invited to the Zoom call, well, now start to invite that person to the Zoom call. Be deliberate and conscious about how you're do how, how you're thinking about these issues. Um, uh, you know, one one of the great ideas we got for somebody is, you know, this is a moment, you know, when your office is empty before you bring everybody back to do some of the structural things that you could never do, like, do you change your bathrooms then, right? Which you could never really do to make them transgendered and gender neutral. Because when you're all using the bathrooms, you can't do it. Well, guess what? Now maybe you do have the time to do it. Um, and so we have a lot of practical advice sort of in there. And the the overriding theme, I would say, to each of those, Bethany, is to be intentional. You know, my goal is we have treated issues of equity, inclusion, diversity, you know, anti-sexual harassment as siloed issues, right? It's over here off to the side in an equity inclusion person or over in HR. Usually it's buried in HR about three levels below the CEO. This is as important as I said earlier, an issue to you and the success of your company as your research and development arm is, right? Or as your marketing arm is. This needs to be owned in the C-suite you know, reporting to the CEO or the CEO needs to own it. Your board needs to think about this at every meeting, every quarter, just like they're reviewing other aspects of your performance. It needs to assume that level of central focus and be infused throughout all the parts of your organization on a constant basis, developing the metrics, looking at what your demographics look like and where there's problems and pockets, looking at what your recruitment practices look like, really examining how you're handing out pay increases and bonuses, you know, and promotion practices and really unpack why you're gonna select this guy versus this woman, right? Um, and on an ongoing basis, I mean, that, that's really the theme that carries through these very specific issues. Mm-hmm. Tina, um, I, I had the, the honor of interviewing um, Secretary Condoleezza Rice a few weeks ago. And one of the things that she said, which I really loved was the highest form of democracy is individual citizens helping individual citizens. And Sylvia has a great question here that's, that's in keeping with that. These issues are so massive. And as an individual, even as a leader, it can sometimes feel overwhelming. Where do we start? And her question is, Tina, how do you begin to think about chunking down these big issues into manageable initiatives at the company level? And you and your team are actually doing some consulting work in this regard as well. Yeah, um, well, just to start with that, you know, one of the things um, I did after the White House was I went back into private practice at, um, a small scan and spinoff firm, Buckley. And they let me actually create a practice because I had the idea coming out of the working families work we had done in the White House pre-Harvey Weinstein that companies were reaching a point where they wanted to do the right thing, but oftentimes it's their lawyers telling them they can't, right? You know, because um, uh, that's what we will do as lawyers is try to limit your liability, but it's kind of like, well, no, maybe you ought to protect these workers even though the law tells you not to because it's going to make your, your, your environment better. Um, so I started a practice doing that. Um, and when I got to time's up, you know, we get called a lot because we're time's up. Um, we're holding companies accountable, but they're also calling us when they're in trouble about what to do. 
And I remember saying in one of those early calls to some, you know, um, a CEO who was asking, he said, just tell me what to do. And I said, well, first of all, it's not just one call. And second of all, I used to charge by the hour for this, um, which sort of led us to realize maybe we should figure out a way to do that. Um, so we have actually created a um, wholly owned for-profit subsidiary under our 501c4. Um, we've called it Times Forward to be essentially a coaching practice. You know, we're not gonna be big like a Deloitte or a McKinsey, but we do have a point of view and we have some very specific things that we think we can coach C-suite level folks to do. The reason I wanna do it is less as a revenue generator. I carry no revenue line in my budget for an expectation out of times forward because I want us to be able to say no when somebody really isn't sincerely about the work. But I want us to have that ability to grow a business like that because I think that is how um, change happens, right? You know, is, as I said before, companies can do it more quickly, but we need to help and help analyze and do it. But then so Sylvia, to the more specific question of how do you chunk it down is, is really, I think if you're a manager, just start to think about these issues of you know, looking at the numbers, looking at your demographics, right? Looking at the demographics of the rest of your, you know, your team or your company, where are you, where, where are the women? Where are the people of color? Where are the disabled people? Where are the LGBTQ folks? Um, and when you've got imbalances, then really start to think about how do you fix them? What's the problem there? Is it a recruitment problem? Is it a retention problem? You know, is it you know people not feeling that they're not getting listened? They're not getting truly mentored when they come in. Um, expanding, you know, think about expanding where you recruit. You know, and I suspect all of you are like in high performing, you know, and, and, and in the tech industry companies, you probably like a lot of folks, law firms, you know, are used to either recruiting in Silicon Valley, it's Stanford, it's, or it's Northeast, right? And there's, there's our huge country in between with lots of really great institutions, right? Um, that are graduating lots of really diverse people. Um, you know, you got to open the aperture to realize, you know, there are, is talent in Howard University. I suspect Howard actually now is going to get a lot of attention <laughs> since the vice president came from Howard, but there's not just Howards, right? You know, there, there are those all over the place. We've got a great one in Chicago, you know, Illinois Institute of Technology. It's like a city school, but it's got one of the best engineering programs in the country, right? And attracts, because it's a commuter school, a lot of diverse folks, you know, into that. You know, start finding those and thinking about those and opening your window on how you're thinking about hiring, but then support them. So the mistake we make when we hire, we drop them into the bucket where they are the only black person, right? In the entire tech and expect them to just figure out the culture on their own when it's not their culture and they don't know how to interact. And that's why you lose them, right? So that's what happens on your retention. So you've got to sort of figure out how do you build you know, systems and programs and be inclusive and pay attention to that. And then how do you think about their performance? You know, people do things like, for example, if you're a woman and you're the only woman or a person of color, guess what? People are afraid to tell you bad news when you do a bad job. And that's why when the time comes to get a promotion, you then all of a sudden discover they thought your work was terrible. Instead of learning like a white guy would each step along the way, he's getting that negative feedback to get better, right? You know, that those are the kinds of experiences that we know happen. The people weren't even seeing that they were doing, right? They were trying to be supportive of this, you know, diverse hire, you know, and, you know, be accepting and accommodating instead of actually helping them grow and grow their skills, right? It's all of those. I think, Sylvia, so I've given you a very long answer to sort of that question, but that's how I think about it is sort of looking at some of the metrics, which you guys are all probably really good at, 
seeing where the gaps are from where you want to be, then start to break down the problem, right? What's the problem in this part of the company that's got this metric that I'm seeing and unpacking that. Hope, hope that's helpful. So helpful. So Tina, um, Condra has a question and I think it's such an important question and you have lived this where you, you went from a career as an attorney into a career as a public servant, now into a career in social impact. Um, and so you've done these amazing transitions and have added a tremendous amount of value um, all the, all, at all the steps along the way. Condra is asking, what is the best way to get involved with politics as we see more of a turn toward the issues instead of toward um, party affiliations? And I loved the commentary that you gave around how much alignment there actually is in this country. How many of these issues we actually agree on, even in surprising places? So for someone who's issue-based rather than you know, party-centric, how do they get involved? Well, I actually started as an issue-based person, right? You know, my introduction to all of this was back as a you know, fresh out of college kid living in Springfield, Illinois, working on the Equal Rights Amendment because that was the focus was the Equal Rights Amendment there. Um, and, and so I started on gender issues, right? So for, first the Equal Rights Amendment, then I did a lot of work actually on sexual assault issues. Then I did a lot of work, you know, on um, reproductive rights issues. Um, and so I actually came that way and then eventually got to a point, this is in the eighties and I'm doing it all very nonpartisan, right? With, you know, issue-based advocacy organizations that were not partisan. And I sort of became a full-on Democrat sort of during the Reagan years when it was just really clear that there was no point in being nonpartisan because the Republican party on all the issues I cared about just wasn't there. And then plus I was living in Chicago, which is you sort of have to be a Democrat in Chicago, the reality is. But it, it really, that was my personal evolution. And so I, I would say absolutely find the issues that you are passionate about. Um, I think it's really important to find issues that you care about because this is gonna take away time and money from you. You know, So it ought to be something that you care about, right? If you're going to invest what little free time that you have to actually work and volunteer for something, it should be something that you're passionate about. And then, you know, there are any number of organizations. I would start local, right? I suspect most of you are located in places where there's going to be, you know, um, a lot of local issues or locally based folks who work on bigger issues, you know, like um, equal pay, for example, you know, or paid leave or, and then, you know, look for those and get involved. I mean, and right now on Zoom, there's actually tons of these, everybody's program is virtual. So you can actually dial into, I was just speaking on a Financial Times one that, you know, this morning out of London that was all on these kinds of issues. Um, you can find those and actually learn about them right now during COVID. That's maybe what the one only silver lining in COVID is you could actually dial into a bunch of really interesting things to learn about these issues if they're brand new to you without actually having to leave your house and spend the money. And, um, and then you can follow up and most anybody who's worth their salt who's a speaker, like I already gave you, like how to get in touch with us, right? You know, you know uh, um, that you can then get in touch with them, right? And follow up and sort of start to do things or find issues that are local. A lot of these issues are now actually getting addressed at the local level because there's so much gridlock in Washington. So you see states and cities, you know, like the ballot initiative in Florida on, on, on equal pay, 
and the ballot initiative in Utah on their gender terminology. There's a lot of state and local um, ordinances and campaigns to get to pay things like $15 minimum wage or paid leave. You know, you can find that out and then get involved. And here's like the secret to doing that. It's my best friends in life came from that work, right? I got a lot of friends still from Skadden, but my best friends in life are the, you know, folks that I have done this work with over the years. Um, my Obama folks, we call ourselves a family because that's how close the bond is, you know, when you go through these issues and you work on them. And so, you know, that's the enrichment that I have gotten, right, from this work is literally the, my, you know, the, the, the people that I love the most, you know, dearest, you know, have come from that kind of work because you're doing something you're passionate about together. And some of it's hard and some of it's painful and you cry about things and you celebrate things. And that, cre that creates an incredible bond that, that really will enrich your life. Tina, thank you. In our last moments together, you know, you, this, is a, this is a heavy moment um, for our country, for the world right now. There's so many different things that we're all grappling with. Um, where are you sourcing hope? What makes you feel hopeful about our future? Oh, well, you know, I am hopeful because actually these issues that I have worked on my entire career. So, you know, I'm... I will tell, I will confess to all of you, I'm about to turn 65 in January, which is freaking me out a little bit because I'm getting all the signups for Medicare, which is totally freaking me out. <laughs> so, so, but that, so that's how old I am. That's how long I've been at this, right? It's like literally 40 years. And for the first time though, I think in the 40 years, I'm really seeing these issues get talked about, right? And dealt with, and not just about among advocates and not just among politicians, running for office, it is among CEOs. Um, it is among all of you. It is in the business sector where there is a real breakthrough, I think, and awareness. And I think we have the potential to emerge from this particular moment in crisis um, with a complete shift. I mean, this is, and this is the other thing you all can do as you're running companies. I really want us to see that shift where these issues do become that front and center of the C-suite. They become the thing that a board of directors evaluates a CEO on right? And makes the selection. It's, you know, I want us to be the new Six Sigma, right? Because I'm old enough that I remember, you know, um, when Jack Welch wrote the book and every client that I had did Six Sigma and asked me to do a Gantt chart on my litigation. It doesn't work so well when you're doing litigation, but it became the thing, right? It was the gold standard for what a good manager in business meant. I want, do you have a good workplace culture? Are you building an equitable and inclusive environment? to be another measurement by which we measure whether you are a good manager or not. One final data point I'll give you, Bethany. If you're indulging me, I've got a cut, you know, an article I cut out of the Wall Street Journal from about three weeks ago in which they did an analysis using the Drucker Institute measurement, right, of effective management. And they wanted to see, was there any commonality between those companies that tested high on the Drucker Institute marker for effective management and low, right? What, it, what Were there any characteristics? The one that they found, and it, and it was true across all five indicators that they use in that, in that benchmark, all five, the highest ranking quartile, all had the most women in their mm -hmm. senior management. And it went down through second quartile, third quartile, fourth quartile, the number of women in leadership went down in each quartile across all five measurements. And their conclusion, it's the Wall Street Journal, 
is women in management is the difference on effective management. So I want us to see that and own it and as a central piece of how we organize our business in America. Let's get it, break line mavens. Um, thank you so much, Tina. What a, an uplifting and important conversation to have with you over the last hour. Loved being with you, love being with our breakline community. Thank you so much for our partners who enable our work and for our amazing breakliners who, um, who help us build this wonderful community. See you all soon. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So um, please join us again next Tuesday here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>